Welcome to episode 79. This week, I'm going to take a short tangent. During my time at NDU, I developed a passion for travel, and I shared some snippets about it in the past, and I want to give you a bit more background as it becomes quite relevant going forward. Up until my trips to Europe with NDU, aside from being stationed in Korea back in 1987, and a side trip to Thailand to visit my sister, I had not traveled outside of the United States other than a day trip to the Mexican border town when I was stationed at Randolph, and then to Montreal during the farm days. At NDU, I shared several trips that I took, and I enjoyed learning about the rest of the world in the short takes, as you may have remembered. In the five years I was at NDU, travel outside of the continental United States included Bulgaria, Austria, Germany, Italy, Korea, India, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, Ukraine, and Hawaii, and I'm probably missing some. It was amazing, and perhaps more than that, I learned about differing perspectives, and it really helps you become a better global citizen. The work was great, and it gave me certainly the impetus to do more traveling on my own. In the short takes early in the podcast, I shared some of those experience and tips. All in all, I have been to 49 states, I'm still missing Minnesota, every continent except Antarctica, and 18% of the world. With great advice from that colleague sticking with one airline, by 2016, I became a million miler on United, which guarantees at least lifetime gold status. I made lifetime gold status at Marriott and Hilton, and up until the pandemic, I was a 1K flyer for more than a decade. Interestingly, with United, the miles toward million miler status only counts actual United miles and not code share miles, and I have a lot of code share miles. I estimated that my actual miles are very close to 2.5 million. You'll see how that made a difference in my travels as they ramped up. I've been to many places multiple times because they are such amazing countries and cities. I'm often asked, where is my favorite place? And it's really hard to answer with just one place because there are categories of favorite places. With that, here I go with some of my favorite places in these many categories. My favorite beach place by far is Aruba. I've been to Hawaii, Puerto Vallarta, Melbourne, Cancun, Belize, Cabo, and others, as well as beaches up and down the west and east coast of the United States. Aruba is amazing in just so many ways. My favorite international city overall has to be Prague. Favorite Canadian city? Toronto. Easiest country to drive? Iceland. Most beautiful U.S. state? Alaska. Friendliest country? Australia. And as the pandemic came about, I had to cancel several trips, including places I've been to, and new places were Vietnam, Finland, and Estonia. And so I didn't get to go to those places. I still have at least two of them on my list. I basically went from 140,000 miles a year to a dead stop. With that, part of my purpose this week is to share the most five important tips that still hold true. First and foremost, get global entry. 
Some premium credit cards will reimburse the $100 fee and is good for five years and includes TSA pre. When you come back to the United States from overseas, it literally, well, at least at my airport, I can be out of the airport in under 15 minutes. The second tip is when traveling abroad, use Apple Pay or Google Pay so your credit card numbers are not transmitted in the event of a fraud issue that you'll never know about in a foreign country. I was surprised how fast these are accepted and adopted around the world. If you don't use Apple Pay or Google Pay, try to pay with credit cards as much as possible overseas. And if you need local currency, use ATMs that are national and not global. Your exchange rate will always be far better. And the last tip is to use Uber whenever possible. This is paid through the app. And if there is a language difference, it is much easier because you simply input where you're going. And let me give you three examples. In Cape Town, South Africa, our average Uber trip was under two U.S. dollars. In Rio, about a dollar fifty. And in London, late night travel in city center with a taxi is very expensive because there are required add-ons by law. And Uber, a third of the price. Rome to Rio is a great site to find out the best travel arrangements from the airport to your hotel or city center. I use it every time, and most of the time, with more research, it tends to be on target and up to date. The fourth trip, I'm sorry, the fourth tip is to make as many reservations that can be canceled to lock in a price. Continue to do your research, and when you see the sweet spot or even a new hotel with a better price, then lock in the non refundable price. And you'll save 10% or more, and sometimes a lot more. This holds true for rental cars as well, and here's one example. I reserved a mid-sized car in Cape Town because we knew we had a lot of luggage. After doing checks over the next bit before we got to the trip time, I locked in the price for the car a third less than the original reservation and we actually drove a C-Class Mercedes. It was awesome. The last tip is, when deciding on activities to do, there is a big difference, or at least from my experience, there was a big difference, in terms of making your plans through the different sites. I highly recommend using Viator over sites like Expedia, and I'm going to give you an example of how I learned this. I was in Cape Coca, Belize, and was scheduled for an ocean activity. I got a text that morning that it was canceled because there weren't enough participants. I called Expedia right away. I use Skype when I'm overseas to call uh, inexpensively. And alas, they were going to give me a credit. And I finally said, no, no, I'm getting a refund. And this is when I switched to Viator completely. The example was in Rio. I booked a small group tour of a city to include going to Christ the Redeemer statue. I let the concierge know I was waiting for a tour and a, likely a small van. I looked, no van. Finally, I asked if the driver came looking for folks for the tour. Are you Spike? Yes. Well, they're here. 
I went out and I only saw a driver standing by a limo. I said, "Are you waiting for Spike?" Yes. She said I was the only one that signed up, and they can't cancel. So I had a private tour all over the city, and by private, I made a one-on-one tour, and it was bonus. Plus, since we were in a sedan, we could drive right up to the place where the uh, activities were, and didn't have to park where the tour buses and vans had to park, which is often a distance to walk. So those are the five biggest tips, and I'm going to give you a bonus tip that I used before the most recent turmoil around the world, and now even more important. If you remember what happened to the citizens in Afghanistan when they were trying to figure out how many Americans were in the country, when traveling overseas, before to log into the State Department, and you can tell them where you're going to go and the dates you're going to be there. So they know how to contact you if need be. It's easy to do. So with this background, as we go through the next period at FDIC and into retirement, you'll see how these tips play out on some of my favorite places to go around the world. Last week, I promised to continue the experience with the Department of Veterans Affairs, or the VA. A couple of episodes ago, you learned that some of the challenges that this arduous process involves, and the next step was to actually get care. Now, I live in D.C., and the VA Medical Center is very busy, as you might expect. And because of this, it's very difficult to get appointments, and even more difficult to get through the process. Because of my rating with PTSD, I was referred to get care with the mental health department, and it was not easy. In fact, it was difficult. The first thing about the VA is that most PTSD is focused on PTSD from veterans returning from conflict and war. That makes perfect sense. The challenge is they're not as familiar with PTSD like I had. From life experiences, and so finally, after much challenge, I got an individual therapist, and he was pretty good. At, well, not having any other experiences, I thought he was pretty good. The problem is that the VA ages veterans out. What do I mean? I use a term that's similar to foster care. The VA limits how long that you can get care. So you're aged out, meaning your time is up and you're on your own, unless you really press. And even then, you really have used up the time that they allow for you to get mental health care. After more than a couple of years, I finally got approval from the VA to get care outside of the medical center, and then things got worse. Now, being conscientious, I asked if my therapist—I asked my therapist if he was getting paid by the VA. Nope. He was a veteran and understood that there was a process. And after several months, still no payment. I wrote to the VA, and all they told me was, "Don't worry, he has a contract." Finally, I wrote to my U.S. senator and congressman to get help. After much back and forth, the VA informed me. That my office was one of the worst to pay bills, and that the Denver office would pay the accumulated bills. 
someone in the D.C. office intervened and said, nope, we have responsibility and we will pay the bills. Six more months, no payment. I had to stop seeing him because I couldn't in good faith keep running up a tab that the VA wasn't paying. Eventually, it was paid at 11 months, not by the VA, but by another government medical program. And it, this whole thing is just wrong on so many levels. Now, if it's happening to me, it's probably happening to others. And there were other nightmares with my care in a number of areas. Having said that, my primary care physician was amazing. He was an older doctor and took exceptionally good care of me. He always went the extra mile for me, and I'm sure other patients as well. He got approvals that required higher level approval and stuck by those. He actually got approval for a medication that required the chief of staff of the VA to approve. Not the chief of staff of the hospital, the chief of staff of the entire VA. And I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. Yet he persisted. I had him for a bit more than a decade and was so sad when he finally retired. I'll say that when your primary care doctor at the VA changes, it's not as easy a process as you might think. Believe me, the VA does not need more money. They need more accountability. I encountered employees at the VA sleeping at their desk. I've been in long lines with two to four technicians talking and laughing among themselves, ignoring the long lines. I've seen employees on their mobile phones playing games instead of caring for veterans. They don't need more money. They need accountability. Now, I will also say that's a small few. I get that. It affects veterans, especially those who need it. And it's their only source of care. To get back on a lighter topic, I shared some of my experiences with some fun vehicles that I've owned. Remember the first Lexus IS300 that I got in Austin and drove to Malmstrom Air Force Base and was the only one in the entire United States to drive this new model because of a rule that Lexus made for dealer dealers. I've enjoyed a number of vehicles across a wide spectrum of companies. After retiring from the Air Force, I got a Mini Cooper. And what a great experience. It was fun, and parking was so much easier in the city. It was the first car that I owned that I had for more than three years. Then, similarly to the situation with the Lexus IS300, many announced they were releasing a two-seater coupe in hardtop and a convertible, and it looked amazing. Unlike with Lexus, I couldn't put a deposit on an unreleased car, so I had to keep my ear to the ground. Finally, it was released, and I raced to the dealer to order one. And I wanted the convertible, but that was going to be a year later, so I settled on the hardtop. Now, by this time, I had had at least 26 cars, and by far, this was the most fun. It was the best car I've ever owned. It was blue with silver racing stripes on the hood. And if you think of your vehicle... 
the Mini Coop Coop, the Mini Cooper Coop, was only 148 inches long. A Toyota Corolla is 183 inches, and a 2024 Mini Cooper is 152 inches. It was adorable and fun to drive with the turbo button. Now, despite the small size, and since there wasn't a back seat, when the hatchback was open, it held enough space of a regular Mini Cooper, so you could carry almost anything that you needed. Anyway, I got this from a dealer in Maryland, and since that was the best offer, I put a deposit when I ordered the car on my credit card. Well, you know, because of the points. Then, when it came in, I wanted to charge the balance. Oh no, we only take credit cards for the deposit. Now, this is in 2011, and in 2011, if you used MasterCard or Visa, or rather, if you offered MasterCard or Visa, the banking contract says you cannot have a minimum charge, and you must take the card for any purchases in the establishment. And I carried that merchant agreement excerpt in my wallet. So by not taking my credit card, they were violating the merchant agreement. Oh, by the way, the law changed years later. However, it was the rule then. Nonetheless, I was kind of upset with this, and I decided to take them to small claims court for damages. The sales contract says that any litigation with regard to the contract is to be filed in Baltimore County. And I said to myself, this isn't a conflict with a sales contract. It was a conflict with the merchant agreement. So I filed the case in Arlington County. The vice president of the company drove all the way down to Arlington County during rush hour and argued the suit was misfiled as how I listed the defendant. And the judge agreed. Dismissed it without prejudice. Rats. The clerk's office said I could go down to the law library on the first floor of the courthouse and maybe ask an attorney what was wrong because the clerk can't help you. It was close to the holidays, and there was one lawyer in the library, and I asked him if he could quickly look at the document to see what was wrong. He really didn't want to, but maybe it was because of the holidays. He looked at it, and it was literally one word wrong. So I refiled. Now, their counsel did not read the summons well. In Arlington County, if the defendant is a company, they can move the case out of small claims court. And if they did that, I would have to hire a lawyer as well. But they didn't. They came back down and argued the sales contract required the case to be filed in their jurisdiction. I did a lot of homework. That particular dealer, dealer was a sponsor for the Northern Virginia Mini Club. And that puts them in Arlington County. Their ads say they serve Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. Again, hmm... The long arm of the law seemed to be a factor since they do business in my jurisdiction. And I also kept my argument that it was the merchant agreement and not the sales contract that was the factor. I even found precedent in Virginia to that effect and with a car company. I felt pretty good. After we both made our arguments, the judge said, and this is really close to a quote, I think I'm making the wrong decision. I knew at that time I lost. He went on and said, because it is about the payment of the sale, the sales contract likely takes precedent 
and he dismissed it again without prejudice and said, I can file in Baltimore County. And then he said, my argument was the best he heard in small claims court. Well, I'm sorry, that wasn't helpful. A compliment, to be sure, but not helpful. So I'm going down the escalator, and the vice president of the mini-dealer was three steps behind me. And he said something, and this was a mistake, sorry it didn't work out. I turned around and said, I'll see you in Baltimore County. His little grin turned into a frown. Fast forward, I didn't refile since it wasn't worth my time to drive all the way up to Baltimore. You win some, you lose some. So, and while on this topic, here's some additional really good advice. Before I got my first Mini Cooper, I had a BMW. While my Mini Cooper was the best car I had, the BMW was the worst. I just didn't like it, and it had more defects than any other vehicle I owned out of the gun. In addition, it was an accident magnet. Over the course of the three years I had this vehicle, three times I was rear-ended. One time I was actually hit by a VFDIC contract vehicle. Anyway, of course, since they're not my fault, the other insurance company is liable. And here's the lesson, and it's really important. If you're in an accident and it's not your fault, their insurance company is responsible for diminutive value. That's the value that your car decreases when it's in an accident. Remember those Carfax ads on TV? That's what I'm talking about. The rub is you can only seek diminutive value if the other person's insurance company is different than yours. That's the key. So each time, I would call the insurance company. They don't like paying this, and they'll put you off. So I headed to small claims court and filed. It cost $25. You get an appraisal of your vehicle and what the likely difference is due to the accident repair. Now, it's very limited precedent in court cases because they don't want them to set precedent with a case. I did my research, and insurance companies tend to pay 65-75% to 75% of the claim to make it go away. I sued three different companies. The first was settled with a bit of wrangling. The next one, I got a call from the insurance company on a Sunday at 7 a.m. I'm thinking they want to settle. And they did. The last one played chicken with me and let the court case come up. We're in front of the judge, and the judge knew I was right and said, Do you think if I give you guys a half hour to go into a conference room, you can work this out? I said, I'm willing. The insurance company rep said, Okay. We settled and informed the judge to dismiss the case. Remember, they don't want precedence. What was the result? When I sold the BMW and added back what I collected in diminutive value over the three cases... I got more than the high book value, so it really does work, and it makes a difference. So remember, if it's not your fault, the opposing insurance company can't be yours, and to be fair, the newer the car, the greater the diminutive value. Accidents happen, and the insurance company has to make you whole. Good luck. So, with these tangents... I hope it might be helpful for some listeners, both in traveling the world 
And if you have a mishap, you know what? Take them to court. Next week, we'll be back at the FDIC.